Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Hi, it's Stephen Colbert. And I'm here to tell you about The Late Show Pod Show, which is the podcast of The Late Show with me, Stephen Colbert. And I'm here with my uh, producer of the podcast, Becca. Hi, Becca. Hi, Stephen. So what do people get when they listen to The Late Show Pod Show? Let's, let's sell this thing. The extended moments, for sure. Because we run out of time for broadcast, but we have plenty of time on the podcast. It's kind of like being a live audience member of the show because you get things that no one else hears. Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, it's almost Christmas, and here at Rosebud, we've got something very exciting for you. We're calling it the Rosebud Christmas Cracker Week. This week, we're going to release two special bonus episodes leading up to our Christmas special this Friday. So what you're listening to now is our first Christmas cracker episode. This is quite exciting. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, let's pull the cracker and find out who's inside. Oh, oh! this is wonderful. It's the star of the Netflix smash hit Bridgerton. It is Adjua Ando. And the reason that she's my guest is that recently I went to see a remarkable production of Shakespeare's play Richard III. It was directed by her and starred her as King Richard. It was at the Rose Theatre in Kingston. And I was bowled away by it. There was something completely compelling about her performance and the way she played Richard as a reflection of her own life. She was, as a child, the only black girl in the Cotswolds. And that was her infirmity. And that's what she brought to life in Shakespeare's play written 400, 500 years ago and brought to me vividly to life. So I wanted to find out more about this intriguing person. I'd seen her on Doctor Who. I'd seen her in Bridgerton. I knew she was well known. I hadn't expected her to be quite so remarkable. See if you agree. Yes. share with me your very first memory, the first thing that you think you remember of your whole life. Okay. Uh, uh, this, is what, this is the one I think it is, Giles. Uh, we lived in Round Hay in Leeds. Still my football team. Weeping bitter tears at the moment. Um, and uh, we lived on the first floor of what, in my memory, was an enormous, enormous house. And it had a galley kitchen. And uh, there were two steps up to this galley kitchen. And I have a memory of my mother in a dressing gown, a red dressing gown. Uh, and as I, I'm... I must be sitting on the bottom of the two steps up to the galley kitchen. She's on the right, um, and there's a sort of 
wall of it looks like cupboards or sinks it must she must be standing over the sink and behind and her she's silhouetted by a window at the end of this galley kitchen and i'm sitting on the floor and i'm looking at whatever it is my mother is doing and my mother is six foot so she's a tall woman and she must have seemed enormously she did seem enormously tall to me but the sensation i have is of red velvet softness and warmth and being utterly absorbed in watching what she's doing and feeling great um contentment and safety well, it's a lovely first memory isn't it now how old would you have been at this time and who was your mother i was under three because my brother came along after that. And my mother was and is rather marvellous. She is, her name is Jacqueline Elizabeth. She was born in 1941 in the basement of the Salvation Army Hospital in Liverpool during an air raid. And we come from a line of tough nut women who just get on with life. So of course Nana gave birth perfunctorily during an air raid and then went back to teaching um, and uh, mum was uh, a history teacher hence my love of history and uh, she was a maverick hence her marrying an African uh, in the face of all not good wishes from her family and um, she is beautiful and striking and interesting uh, she loves a hat, hence Lady Danbury wears a hat, in honour, you know, a little nod to my mother. And um, she's a great dancer. She used to go clubbing with me, um, post one husband before the second one. I was a teenager, she was divorced, we'd go clubbing together. And she's a wonderful dancer, my mum. And, uh, and generally, she just loves life. She embraces, she has an appetite for life, both my parents do. No. And well, who, who is your father? Ah, my what fa is your first memory of him now? Isn't that interesting? What's my first memory of Dad? Ah, uh, um, it will be Dad in... Where would this have been? This would be in the bedroom. This is a later memory, actually. I have a memory of him holding me, but you know it's one of those memories you're not sure if it's a memory or a photograph yeah. that you've yeah. absorbed. But a, a memory memory of Dad is sitting at the end of my bed with his guitar. I thought that everybody's dad came into their bedroom at bedtime and sang songs before they went to bed. And then when I went to secondary school and had a friend round for a sleepover and Sarah looked at me aghast as in, what does your father do? Why is he here? What's going on? Come to sing, Sarah? Just, what? Just, he sings every night. So that, that's, that's my memory of my dad. He would sing, he would sing folk songs, uh, Harry Belafonte, um, a whole, a whole Jamaican stuff, all sorts of things. And who was he? Oh, my father was and is uh, nearly 91. Um, he is Frank Charles Echo Anochi Ando. And he is Ghanaian. And he uh, he uh, is a Cape Coast Fante. So, uh, What's that mean? Uh, Fante is our tribe. Oh. Cape Coast is a region of Ghana on the coast where the, uh, the Elmina slave castle is. Um, it's also the place where 
big education happens in Ghana. Uh, so Mfamp's been boarding school. Uh, he calls Kofi Annan, ah, Annan, junior boy. <laughs> because uh, public school boys always still at school, doesn't matter what age you are, hierarchy remains. So um, he went to Mfamp's bin. And his English teacher set up the first journalism school in Ghana. So dad was born in 32. So this would have, this would have been late 40s, early 50s. And dad knew from the off that he did not want to go to university, which was the way of things. He wanted to be a journalist. So he went to the first journalism school and he worked for the Daily Graphic, which is a newspaper set up by the Daily Mirror. And he became chief sub-editor on the Daily Graphic. This is in Ghana? In Ghana. And uh, so if you want to get my dad talking, talk about, think, what was it like being a cub reporter? What did you get sent out on? Uh, talk about putting the newspaper to bed on a Friday night. Talk about selling advertising space, you know, um, subbing the headlines, all that sort of stuff. So that's what dad did in Ghana. And then uh, Nkrumah was the first um, president of a sub-Saharan independent country in Africa. Nkrumah was a Marxist. Um, he was a pan-Africanist with C.L.R. James and George Padmore and that whole generation of usually European-educated, smart, smart um, men who just didn't want to be colonised anymore. So Nkrumah became the, became the president and, you know, my father's 25, it's thrilling. Uh, and Nkrumah was a Marxist and the Cold War was being fought on the continent of Africa, of Africa as we all know. And so uh, the CIA flooded the newly formed Ghana, to destabilise this Marxist government. So Nkrumah rightly became paranoid uh, about his political opponents, insisted that everybody involved in state organisations join the party. My father, as a young, smart journalist in this newly formed democracy, refused, said, is this the democracy we fought so long and hard for? And he and many of his colleagues uh, fled were exiled or died uh, and he fled came to the united kingdom and came to the united kingdom where he set up again as a journalist he went to fleet street yeah he went to the daily mirror assuming wrongly that he would be able to get a job on the yeah, daily mirror worked for their paper absolutely in Ghana. and was basically <laughs> told to get knotted so he never worked as a journalist again he ended up being an accountant which is obviously antithetical words and numbers mm. uh uh, for British Aerospace. So I grew up thinking he'd built Concorde. Um, he'd contributed. He had contributed. How did he meet your mother? Uh, he met my mother because my grandmother fled with her five children from her merchant seaman, extraordinary man, terrible husband and father, husband, uh, with her old uh, younger sister, and they moved to Clifton in Bristol. They bought a house. Nana and the five kids lived on the ground floor, Auntie Lear, who was the most glamorous woman I've ever met, she smoked with a cigarette holder, always had red nail varnish and red lipstick at all times, very glamorous, also a school teacher. Uh, she had the middle floor and they rented out the top floor to university students. And um, next door to my grandmother lived a Nigerian vicar. And my mum, uh, my nana was a, a churchgoer all her life and uh, mum used to help the vicar with his uh, girls and boys club um, and as a thank you he took her to a dance uh, being held by the Bristol African Students Association of which my father now living in Bristol 
uh, doing an accountancy course was the president. And my mother said she fell in love with the sound of his voice. Very good. He was 10 years older now. He was. He and she'd, wa- been, she'd been married. Nine years. Nine, nine years, years older. 32 to 41. Uh, uh, yes. 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 So. So she was, she was, mum was, well, uh, she, mum had already had a Hungarian uh, b- boyfriend, so she was not going for the you know, average Bristolian next door. Yeah. Mother was, her, her sights were set elsewhere, because mother had worked with refugees in Austria, uh, helping to, so uh, all those displaced people were still displaced in the late 50s. We have to get back in a moment to your first memories. Sorry. But, but, but no, 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 don't say sorry, because this is such a gripping story. Uh, explain to us then how this union happened. So oh, here we have this so 32-year-old falling, or rather the 21-year-old falls for this man's voice. He's 32. And how does the relationship blossom? Uh, well, no, he was, what was, what was dad? He came over, so he, so this must have been, it's 60. So he would have been 28. Very good. They both had an appetite for life. And they danced. My mum's a great dancer. My dad was a fabulous dancer. He's only got one leg that works now, so no, not so much. Um, uh, so, you know, they were interesting, beautiful young people. And she fell for his voice. And she fell for his voice. Because he sounded like Harry Belafonte, possibly. He sounded pretty... Pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. He still sounds pretty good. And was there marriage... Was it easy? You said you implied uh, uh, it wasn't no, easy. No, it, it wasn't easy. My grandmother was very, very happy to live next door to a Nigerian vicar and have and be friends and all of that stuff. But marrying, does a whole other conversation. So my mother's sister, my Auntie Leah, um, in today's terms, we would call somebody who was a racist. And she whispered in her older sister's ear and said, you can't, Jessie, you can't have that. Of course, as soon as I was born, every photograph, whose lap am I sat on? Auntie Liz, um, with a fag on the go, and me <laughs> in one hand. So uh, Nana absolutely put a foot down about the wedding. She um, got my grandfather down. For, she'd left him, but she got him involved. He, um, he was absolutely implacably opposed. Of course, if you say that to my mother... Of course she's going to marry him. Uh, and she did. And none of the family came to the wedding. They all went to Cornwall. They went to Padstow on holiday. I mean, they did go to Padstow on holiday. But they chose to go... At this when precise they, moment, yes. yeah. So it was a small wedding. Uh, it was their friends. Uh, there were Ghanaians there. Uh, there were some of mum's uh, teacher friends. And they got married Quakers Friars in Bristol at the registry office. And when did you first become aware, you personally, mm. that you were of mixed race? I wasn't, I, you know, so I was, telling, I was talking to my brother about this the other day, we were laughing. I had a red knitted dressing gown, I mean, everything, obviously everything was knitted then, it's the early 60s, uh, with a penguin patch pocket. I used to steal threepenny bits from my mother's purse and go across the road to the chocolate masi- machine, uh, you could get a bar six out of the chocolate machine, and uh, buy bars of chocolate to give to two boys at school. I, I was in the infants and I was being beaten up. And I didn't make the connection between why was I buying this chocolate and why was I giving it to particular children. Um, but when a neighbour apprised my mother of the fact that I was nipping across the road early of a morning and coming back with chocolate, I was convinced it was because she, she'd identified me by my penguin patch pocket <laughs> dressing gown. I, I, that was my uh, that was my sense. Of, I was like, mm, why did I wear that dressing gown? If only I'd got dressed, she wouldn't have gone. Anyway, um, so I don't think I was really aware of 
I wasn't. I wasn't. I was. Uh, I was aware of being walloped a lot, and then I was aware of having learning to fight back. But I sort of thought that was what happened at school until I was a bit older, and I would, you know, friends would say, "Oh, oh, we're going to go back to mine. Oh, um, we'll have to get out before my mum comes because you're not allowed in our house." It'd be that sort of thing, and then you sort of start to investigate that. But I think I must have been the end of infants before I tweaked what that so was. So when you were being walloped as a little girl, yes. were you, did you think it's because you were naughty or I or just thought sort of that fighting was the thing. Yeah. Uh, and were you the only black child in, in the, the school? school? Yes. Ah. We, were, we were the black people in the, I don't know, 40 or 50 miles Rate. I mean, it's because where is this now? Where the, are you we're, now we're in we're in the rural Cotswolds. Yeah, because you move. Uh, so I was born in Clifton, yeah. in Bristol. Uh, then we moved to Leeds. Yeah, because uh, Mum got a job up there, uh, and then uh, Dad got a job at British Aerospace, which is based yes. in Filton, Bristol. So then we moved we, south again. Mum got the teaching job. Uh, we could have moved back into Bristol, but Dad had lived there, and he knew that in the early sixties, uh, apart from the Bristol bus boycott, which happened. The, over the winter that I was born. What was that about? Okay, so the Bristol bus boycott. Um, is a, We should all know about this. It happened 62 to 63. Basically, the cu- bus companies and the um, transport unions uh, came together to say, we can't have those coloured people on the bus. And one of their arguments was, would you want your daughter on the bus late at night with one of them? So they wouldn't let them have clippies or drivers who were Asian or African Caribbean. So for a year, there was a bus boycott. So working class white Bristolians joined with um, working class brown and black Bristolians to boycott the buses over the worst, you know, the 62 Mm. winter was the worst winter they'd had for yonks. So the the sort of enormous act of solidarity, everybody boycotted the buses. Uh, And eventually the boycotters won and brown and black people were allowed to work on the buses in Bristol. And that led to the first piece of race relations legislation in this country. So that all came out of the Bristol bus boycott. I think it's 67 the legislation came out. This is amazing. I'm afraid I've never heard of it and I was alive then. I know. And it would have been big news in some circles, I suppose. Well, clearly not in the the rarefied circles that I was moving Um, in. So so, so we... Sorry, Giles. So we moved... So my dad had experienced Bristol in that way mm. and knew that the, uh, a, a disproportionate number of African-Caribbean children were put in educationally subnormal schools, uh, you know, as, as, as a normal thing that happened. So, and he's, a, you know, the man that went to school with Kofi Annan Jr. boy, yeah. a man of, of literacy and education, and he was not going to risk his children ending up there and I think my mother was completely in agreement you know she's an educator as well so they moved to the Cotswolds so we moved to a tiny ridge in the Cotswolds because uh, they could both commute to their jobs and they both felt that we stood a better chance of a good education somewhere small that didn't have a, a particular perspective on what it thought certain people were capable of or not capable of and indeed we had a great education 
in the Cotswolds. So never mind being the only gay in the village, yes. you were the only black person in the Cotswolds, um, virtually. I black pr- child. I suppose, um, well, there was my brother, obviously. <laughs> uh, and my dad still lives in the house we grew up in. Uh, and he's been, you know, he's been on the parish council and done every worthy burger. He still sings in the choral, local choral society. He's only just given up his uh, allotment. So absolutely embedded in that village for over 60 years now. Hello, it's Giles here, and I'm very happy to tell you that this series of Rosebud is sponsored by one of my favourite hotels in the world, the JW Marriott Grosvenor House Hotel on London's Park Lane. One thing for which the Grosvenor House Hotel is justifiably famous is its great room. This has hosted royal banquets, boxing matches, BAFTA award dinners, and was even the location for a Dua Lipa video featuring live horses. But during the Second World War, the Great Room was transformed. It was requisitioned by the War Office as a mess hall for U.S. Army officers. New American kitchens were installed, and 450 staff served up to 14,000 meals a day. The room is so big that there were over 1,000 officers at each sitting. In total, 5.5 million meals were served between 1943 and 1945. The Great Room is a piece of history, and well worth a visit when you come to the Grosvenor House Hotel, which I hope you will, because every single person who walks through the door at this hotel is treated as if they were royalty, or even as if they were an American president, and American presidents have stayed here. We're delighted that the J.W. Marriott Grosvenor House Hotel are supporting this series of Rosebud. Do make sure you book with them next time you want a five-star experience in London town. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com Spotify. TommyJohn.com Spotify. See site for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Accenture overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. And what's your happiest, your first happy memory of childhood? Oh, well, um, sitting on a windy, it would have been a summer evening, but it felt wintry to me. Sitting in the bedroom, uh, my brother had just been born. He was born in August 66. 
sitting against a wall in my mother and father's bedroom and we had these stripy green and white curtains. I think I've probably still got them. Not that I'm a hoarder. (laughs) (laughs) And the wind is flapping them and it's late at night and mum is breastfeeding Yofi. That's my brother. And I'm just sitting there sort of thinking, if I stay quiet and really small, they won't notice I'm here and nobody will send me back to bed. And there was just this thing. I was... I adored my brother from the moment he was born and um, still adore him now and uh, I just think there was something again that sense of being very safe and in this cocoon really and who was your first friend your first proper friend at school uh, uh, well, or maybe it, wasn't it, was in, it was it was Simon. It was in Leeds, and Simon. Uh, I rem- I remember Simon was younger than me, so he was two and a half maybe. And um, uh, I would go and call for Simon, and we would just play in the back streets. Um, and uh, he had white blonde hair and very very pale blue eyes and very pale skin. And he uh, always he always seemed to be in an oversized coat. And I remember one day going round to get, to call for Simon and uh, I went round and he was going to have his lunch so I had to wait and his lunch was a packet of biscuits. And I just remember, I don't think I said anything to anyone but I just remember thinking, that's not right. You can't have biscuits for your lunch. That's and But that's, you know... And, and you, in retrospect you go, well, that's just the restricted means of mm. how he was growing up what's the first no mention food what's the first food you can remember enjoying and the first drink so uh food would be the predicting meal the predicting meal was so called because you would get it every school holiday obviously my mum's a school teacher so um uh school meals during term times were a hit and miss affair uh when smashed potato was a thing mm. Um, I think it, my mother fell upon it with joy. Just add boiling water and stir. Excrable stuff. Um, oh, I quite like oh, it. Oh, Giles, If you no. put a lot of butter with it. Yeah, well, yes, that's true. And black pepper. You could <laughs> yeah. almost kill that horrible packet flavour. So, yes, they, they would be smashed potato, boiled tin tomatoes and fish fingers, which then, having become a working mother, I completely get. But in the holidays, mum would make the predicting meal, which was proper mashed potatoes, lots of butter, milk and black pepper, mm. um, uh, and, a, and tuna fish in white sauce. Uh, again, lots of black pepper and, uh, um, and garden peas. But they, weren't, they were tinned garden peas and they were the sort of olivey green colour ones. They weren't the bright, they weren't the petit pois, which were too sweet and wrong. They were, and they weren't mushy peas, they were something in between the, and it had to be the right peas or the meal was a disaster. But that was, that's my earliest memory of my favourite, and my mum still makes it, but she makes it, my brother and I like, ah, childhood. What's your earliest memory of pain? Um, having my head smashed against the wall in the infants. And mm. it's, co- it's a traditional Cotswold Stone primary, you know, county primary school. Yeah. So Cotswold Stone, you know, oh it's bumpy. God. It's not flat, yeah. it's bumpy. And that's the memory, is of having... And, and in my head, you know, in... Um, uh, um, oh, in, in, in like the Beano, you'd have mm. gna... Yeah. exclamation marks you know all those sort of um, e- 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 um, exclamations of pain mm. the way they would be written as my head would hit 
I would see stars, but I would also see <sighs> the cartoon bubble of, you know, G-N-N-H-H, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. Um, that, that's, my fir- that, that's my first memory of, of pain. When did it stop? When I learned to headbutt people. And you fought back. Yeah. And that put them in their places, did they stop? It stopped. Yeah, it absolutely stopped. And then, um, and then we, w- <laughs> we used to have war games at school, girls versus boys. And there was an infant's playground, then there was a girl's playground and a boy's playground. And I was allowed to play in the boy's playground because by then I was a tough nut. Mm-hmm. Um, but we would have these war games and I would come home from school with absolutely no voice because every playtime I'd be like, come on, fight the boys. Um, so, yeah, it stopped when I, when I realised that there was this thing I could do to make it stop. When did you first think that you were special, if you did think you were special? I never thought I was... I, I always felt like I was trying to catch up with everyone. Um, a, a couple of things. I was, so I was put up from the infants into the lower juniors at six because um, I was smart. I did the 11 plus a, le- a year early and got a grammar school pass. So you were special? Well... Nobody really rates that at school, do they? Being smart. If you're funny or you're good at sport, yes. If you're smart, mm. but I imagine you were both funny and good at sport. I was terrible at sport. I am dyspraxic to my, you know, hair follicles. So um, it's genetic and it's inherited from my mother's side. And at school, there wasn't. You know, you weren't called dyspraxic. I only knew about dyspraxia when my eldest daughter was diagnosed with dyspraxia. Um, and I thought, there's nothing wrong with her. She's just like me, a bit, bit slow. Um, and the dyspraxia thing meant I was rubbish at sport at school. It would be me and the girl with the very thick lenses would be left and they'd pick her over me. Um, uh, but I was funny and I could entertain. And I, um, I quickly learned that it was something that I loved. Um, so, yes, so those are the things I learned. Headbutt, entertain, um, uh, be smart, but don't talk about it. When was the first time you thought, I'm in love? Oh, Murray Goodsir was his name. <laughs> he was Canadian. I was 10, and they came to stay with our next door but one neighbours, the Ryans. And, oh, I loved Murray Goodsir. I loved his little pudgy face and his dark hair and his freckles and his Canadian accent. I just thought it was the most marvellous thing um, to, to just have this sense of being from somewhere else and somewhere that was glamorous and um where did he live oh no i know live in it was beyond Toronto. seattle it was the other side is across oh. the board because i knew his rain ca- oh, country he, he lived in washington i just loved murray good sir and occasionally because i played vancouver with vancouver he came from vancouver he was he did Charles. Yeah. Yeah, well, mm. um, so yeah, Murray Goodsir. I would trog up and down the street outside our house just in case he came out or they were going somewhere, and I would have outfits, clogs, quite often a skirt on my head to give me a sense of long flowing hair, um, uh, sometimes bits of my father's old fifties suits. Um, Did yeah. Murray reciprocate? No, of course he didn't. But he oh. would. Um, he would tell me about Canada. And uh, we would laugh about words that were different. Um, and uh, he would hang out a bit, but he was a 10-year-old boy. I don't think he had any notion. Oh, I did at 10. Did you? Yeah, I certainly did. Well. Well, there we are. There we are. So what was the first time you had a, a love affair in the sense of falling in love with someone and it became a relationship? 
Um, I would say for me, the big one was Mark Crew. Mark Crew. He was the first punk in my that I knew. I was a punk. I'd listened to John Peel with my father, who loved the Chieftains folk music, and John Peel used to play them. Ten till midnight, Radio One, every evening. And then this new thing came along on his shows called Punk. And so I was a punk from 19... late 76 onwards. And uh, I would say it saved my life in many ways in this weird sort of rural existence where I was, you know, in my teens now and wanting to go places and do things and aware of my difference and aware... And not very happy? Um, beginning I, to feel... Uh, yes, I was... I was starting to want boyfriends and people wouldn't be my boyfriend because they couldn't because they'd get in trouble all that sort of stuff was starting to happen so this punk world where it's like be what you want to be was marvelous to me and it was full of really interesting people and mark crew worked in a foundry so um in dursley there was lister's foundry and Mark uh, worked at Lister's Foundry. He was the smallest, dweebiest man you've ever seen. He didn't really have shoulders. He had arms that came from the neck. He sort of sloped <laughs> down um, with the biggest brain. And um, we came to London, me and Mark, because he was a punk and, and eventually he noticed me. Hello. I had blue hair by then. Hello. And... Um, <laughs> He'd sort of outgrown punk by then. Um, but we came to London with my other friend, who is my best, my best friend, Alison La. Uh, my parents were divorced by now. We, we'd moved four miles away to Wooten under Edge, which was a, a huge urban conurbation of 8,000 people. And uh, Mark lived in Wooten under Edge. And we, went, we came to London and we stayed with my uncle Keith, who was the, uh, he was the labour editor of The Guardian. So we stayed on, his, uh, on the living room floor there, the three of us, to explore that there in London. And we saw Tony Benn. I took a photograph. That's Tony Benn. Um, and we wandered about and had, had a marvellous time. And, uh, uh, and, and by the end of our trip up, we were girlfriend. We were caught in strong, as we would say out there. We were walking out together. And, um, oh, it was marvellous. He was fantastic. We did the Pennine Way together. Um, he read me all of... Uh, um, J.I.R. Tolkien's. We did. We started with The Hobbit. We went right through all of Lord of the Rings. He did all the voices. We got a house together. I worked for Lloyd's Bank. Oh, you moved in together. Oh yeah. And what yeah. age are you? Um, so, so I had a nervous breakdown in the sixth form at school. I was supposed to go to Cambridge to Trinity, where my headmaster had gone to read law. Because this isn't a normal question. I don't say to people, "What was your first nervous breakdown?" But I must introduce that into the list of questions. Well, so you're indeed, nervous, you had a nervous breakdown. I had a nervous breakdown this. in the why? sixth form. Why? Uh, uh, my parents were getting divorced. And why were they getting divorced? Uh, Unpack this. They were getting divorced because life was very pressurised for them. Uh, I think you know. You try and keep the world's misery at the front door, and sometimes it seeps in. And I think my dad was very unhappy. Uh, he never got promoted. He was training people who were then promoted over him. Um, I think uh, I think he was an upper-class Ghanaian man, suddenly thrust into the role of a another black man, um, so and treated in that way not um, in the career he should have been in, which was journalism, uh, doing numbers uh, for a massive corporation and then promoting people 
whose work uh, he would have to improve, who then became his boss. And I think it was a very bitter pill to swallow. So I think he was very unhappy. And my mum was raging on his behalf, but couldn't fix it. And eventually it did for them. And you were witnessing all this mm. and getting unhappy yourself. What was the cause of, of your I think, well, breakdown? So, uh, uh, here's the thing. I was, so I went up to secondary school a year early. I don't know what I think about putting kids up a year early. Because I think emotionally, I was the age I was. And my peer group was that bit older. And I think it takes its toll. So I think I was being, I was the eldest child, eldest children, very good children. You know, I was smart. I was working hard. I was trying to be the good girl and do all the correct things. Uh, and I think it was a combination of all of that that uh, wore me down. And what does a nervous breakdown mean? Well, I would not have used case. it at the time. I would say it now. What it meant for me was I started getting blinding migraines that would last days uh, that I would have to lie in the darkened room and throw up for days uh, couldn't couldn't see anything at all and um, it meant that I was from going from being you know super smart high achieving I was falling behind with everything couldn't cope with anything very tearful um it was very, con I mean, it was concerning for the teachers. I had you lovely were by now staff. Doing A levels. I was doing. Uh, it was. It, it was. Uh, yeah. All it last it year. started in O levels, but yeah. it slid into A levels. Um, concerning for staff who loved me, knew I was. You know, teachers liked me because mm. I was. You know, you, you like a smart kid. They're in, in, enjoyable to teach. I had. Uh, I remember my lovely head of languages. I, I, I was a language girl. Yeah, he, I remember him coming in one day and saying, you know, if I believed in God, I'd pray for you. But um, I don't, so I can only wish you well and hope this passes. You know, And it did pass, but before it... Ah, oh, it didn't pass. What it didn't happened? pass before my A-levels were set. Um, so, um, uh, so I bombed my A-levels. Uh, I did the Oxbridge entrance exam. Uh, I got an interview at Cambridge. Um, I bombed the interview. And... Uh, I, I just, I felt like I was looking at the world, uh, you know, at a remove. And you had blue hair? Uh, no, I didn't. Yes, I had the blue hair by the time. I wasn't allowed to come in to collect any academic prizes, With which I was hair. still getting because of the blue hair. Mum rang me, don't come into school. Alison's just come down. Alison went red. My hair was this turquoise blue. Oh um, uh, Alison's just come into school. They've sent her home. And she'd won the art prize because she's an artist. It put my poor mother, just sort of kind of trying to juggle all her things. So your parents are split up and yep. they tolerated you moving in oh, with this boy? Listen, it's the Cotswolds in the 19, early 1980s. We, you know, we were very sensible. I worked for Lloyds Bank. He worked in the foundry. We had all the envelopes, you know, the television rent money and the rent money and the gas and the electric money. We were very organised. We, we grew potatoes and onions and tomatoes and all but sorts of things. given your grandparents, given your faith, didn't you want to get married? No. Oh, no, no. It's, 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 I was a punk, Giles. I was a punk and it was the early 1980s. I was a socialist feminist already. Um, we had posters of Muammar Gaddafi on our, the walls in our house, um, me and Mark. We read all of Joseph Heller next after we did Lord of the Rings. You know, we, we, we read things. We listened to, we were listening to Mark, crew, 
both parents, just local people in the Cotswolds, you know, council estate, super smart boy. He was listening to African music. I mean, he was... He was incredibly well read. Of course, there was a. Uh, event after we split up, he he ended up. Um, he was the chief sub editor for Venue Magazine, which was the listings magazine in Bristol, and um, he uh, was also their food and drink critic. And he was incredibly eloquent, uh, beautiful um, journalist. And he ended up doing what he should have been doing all along, journalism. And I ended up doing what I should have been doing all along, acting. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When you want the best, you have to act fast, especially when hiring for your business. You want to find the most talented people before the competition scoops them up. And the best way to do that? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds top talent fast. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional-level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Well, tell us when you first realised you wanted to be an actor. Well, I loved making stories and making, you know, stuff. Um, I would direct the neighbourhood kids uh, in plays I'd never seen. Um, we did Blythe Spirit. It involved a lot of neck curtains and flicking light switches on and off. And charging our pa- parents 2p to sit through hours of unintelligible guff. Um, I, w- I remember choreographing the whole of Gustav Holt's Planet Suite with the Ryan children of Murray Goodsir fame. Uh, I was always making up stories and plays. I had a long romantic relationship with a girl called Tina where I was, um, I was the Russian prince and she was the peasant girl. Uh, that seemed to go on for ages in our back garden um, where I'd be ordering her about and doing all of that stuff. I was always doing stuff. And my drama teacher was a, na- a woman called Vera Connor Douglas. And she, her brother, was a real professional actor. So I was in awe of her. And she would say, now, I'm giving you a note as a professional. And I would swoon at the thought that she considered me professional noteworthy. Um, so I did all the school plays, um, which I absolutely, it was my high spot. Uh, and then, for my drama O-Level, we had to go and see a play in Bristol. And Kate Nelligan was in David Hare's Plenty. And something in that story touched something deep in me and made me feel something. And it's when I understood the magic of theatre and of storytelling and that alchemical experience that happens in a live event. 
And how did you translate that into your working life? How did it become what you now do? I resat my A-levels and went to work for Lloyds Bank. Oh. It didn't translate at all because I didn't know what the... Sp- it's the Coxwells. It's the 1960s. I can milk cows by hand. Um, I can round up a herd. I know about sheep and black Brienne. And, I mean, Laurie Lee side with Rosie was like a documentary of my childhood because the 60s in the Cotswolds was like the 40s. For the- so I didn't know that there was a structure. And I didn't understand that structure until I packed in Lloyds Bank. I did a year during the Falklands. I hated it. I was an ex-punk working, doing something I was not very good at, Books never balanced. I was utterly bored by 9.30 in the morning. All the boys were in the TAs and they were talking about going, going to give the Arges some. All the girls were wearing lady dye blouses. And I just, it was not my milieu. Um, so I, I sent off to Bristol Polytechnic and said, OK, I'll do a law degree, anything, get me out of here. So I went and did a, a law degree at Bristol Poly, now the University of the West of you England. You completed the degree. <laughs> course I didn't complete ah. the degree I did two years I think landlord finally finished me off I just thought <laughs> I don't care I got through torts but this no don't care don't care don't care my father did the classic thing which I would have done with any of my just finish it just mm-hmm. finish it I can't tell it, don't it. I want to be an actress uh, so two years in I packed in the law degree paid back the grant uh, and took acting classes and when I went to see my head of department at Bristol Polytechnic he said to me oh I wish I'd packed in my law degree he said do you know um the Hope Centre in Bristol they're running these amazing do you want to come to a music class with me and I was like yeah so he was learning the violin I picked up the cello and I went to the Hope Centre and I I learned the cello and I did the acting classes and then eventually I went up to an audition for this play I got the job and uh I never went back to Bristol I thought I was coming for two months and I just never went back I lived in a squat and I, I still live, you know, about a 10-minute walk from that squad. I saw recently mm. your, in my view, wonderful production of Richard III, in which you play Richard III. Thanks, Giles. And it's informed, I think, by you being the only black girl in the Cotswolds. It utterly is, completely. That was the conceit. The question I want to ask mm. you is... Having been the only black girl in the Cotswolds yes. in the 1960s, yes. has that, it has clearly informed your life. Yes. Has it enhanced your life or damaged your life? Or has it simply informed your life? I would say it's, it's, done, it's, done some, it's done certain things. It's given me an absolute, everlasting love of nature. The sound of a wood pigeon is music to my ears. It taught me very early on to be self-conscious um, that I had to make people like me um, because they might not like me because of the look of me. And I think that's a terrible burden for a child. If I'd stayed in the Cotswolds, I don't know. But there's a, a life I could have had that would have been working for Lloyds Bank, getting married, settling down, and just being there forever. Um, and... Um, that and I'm sure I, that could have been a, a very nice life, but I don't think it's a life I'm gifted for. Um, and so there's something that I feel very strongly about helping people from whatever their backgrounds. You know, you may be the son of a very wealthy banker who's supposed to go into the firm, but you're really good at tapestry, and that might be your gift. So it's not a the traffic goes in all directions but for the soul to find its gift and have the opportunity to express that gift i just think what a world we would live in if we were all living in our best place one last question when Mm. you die yes and you will i will and you go to heaven and you will will i 
What will the first words be that you say to the Almighty when you come face to face with your maker? Thanks very much. Thanks very much. Perfect. Lovely. Well, I thought that was fascinating. I hope you did too. Thank you so much to Adjua for sharing her remarkable life story with us. There's another Christmas Cracker episode coming up very soon. Same sort of time, same sort of place. See you then. Well, actually, I won't see you, but I'll know you're there. And uh, you'll hear me, I hope, with a very special guest. A unique guest. Yes, it'll be, well, Rosebud's first centenarian. Rosebud is produced by Harriet Jane, artwork by Freya Betts, and music by Phil Leppard.